Thank you all for coming. I know you're impatient to get started, so let's get started. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, well, I think I was more warmed up eight minutes ago, but that's, I do. I have to say that although I'm told it's a Jewish audience, the fact that these programs begin on time does make me wonder if there isn't something going on. I know, that's even weirder. I've never seen that before. Um, it's stressful for me because it means I also have to show up on time, which you know, is a lot to ask. Um, well, so here we are, and wow, that's a, it's a big we for an intimate, uh, an intimate uh, seminar session on the history of Kabbalah, but uh, it's, it's a privilege and very, really even moving to see how much interest there is in the topic, and I hope I w will not disappoint. Um, I decided that the introduction that I've used in the past was no good and threw it out and started it fresh today, so you are guinea pigs for a new a new iteration of this uh, Kabbalah on One Foot series of three talks. Um, and as you know, and I think this is just the typical way um, things are done in this series, um, I'm, I will restrict myself tonight even uh, a little bit more seriously than I, I did last night to 45 minutes. I'll stop wherever I am after 45 minutes because I can pick up from there at session two, and uh, make sure that we have the full time allotted for Q&A, and I'll stick around for a few minutes after that for um, people to come up individually if there are questions that need to be addressed um, urgently. So here we are, the Kabbalah unveiled. I just uh, would like to open by saying a word about the title of the series. I don't know if anybody thought it was a bit strange or recognized it from somewhere, but, um, but it was a wink at one of the most important works of Kabbalah ever published. Uh, it happened to be published in Latin rather than in Hebrew or in Aramaic, which is more typical. The book, Kabbalah Denunda Denudata, which means what it sounds like, denuded, um, often translated as unveiled because it sounds a little bit more glamorous than, than like the naked Kabbalah. I guess if it were a modern work, you could get away with it. But in the 17th century um, and subsequently, when the parts of the book were translated uh, in the 19th century, they tended to go with unveiled. Uh, and it's, it's not just a wink at that book, but a wink at the fact that the interest in Kabbalah has been really strikingly broad throughout the history of Kabbalah in a way that is simply not true of other dimensions of post-biblical Jewish existence and creativity. So if Christians in particular were interested in, um, well, interested in the Bible, of course. It took Christians a long time to even acknowledge that there was post-biblical Jewish creativity and that 
that wasn't a bad thing. I'm not sure, I'm not sure they ever made it all the way to it's not a bad thing, but the very acknowledgement that there was rabbinic literature, that there was a Talmud and Midrash and so forth wasn't so simple. And, and there was certainly never anything like Christian halakha, you know, or Christian Talmud, or Christian, there's Christian Hebraicism, it's mostly biblically oriented. And since the 13th century, with a big, well, everything it has to be put in relative terms, but with a big surge in the 15th century and again in the 17th century, the Christians were very interested in Kabbalah. I will speak more about this in the third of, of this series and, and there'll be other opportunities as well, but um, it's quite striking that Kabbalah of all these post-biblical Jewish phenomena is the one that attracted interest um, and about which you can say there is such a thing as Kabbalah that's not just Jewish Kabbalah. There is such a thing as Christian Kabbalah. That's not the subject of tonight's talk. But, um, but the broad interest, and you could take it to different places if you want, the, the, um, even the marketing of Kabbalah, the, the broad appeal, the kind of push and pull between concealment and, and, and uh, publicizing, promoting, that this is going on for centuries. Um, so uh, it, in a way, is an acknowledgement of the irony of my standing here with a microphone under fluorescent lights telling a room full of people about the Kabbalah when Kabbalistically speaking, we should be two or three people at a table with a, a book open, uh, some candles lit, maybe a joint rolled. Now I can say that, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> recreationally speaking. Um, and that would be a different but actually more normal way of talking, learning Kabbalah than what we have right here. But again, in, already in the 17th century, People were translating Kabbalah into Latin and printing copies of it and selling them in their local bookstores. So it's weird and it's also just, the, when, you, when something is weird long enough, it becomes normal, I guess. So this is weirdly normal um, in the long durée of uh, talking about the Kabbalah in a kind of public forum. Um, so that's the title of the series. What about just Kabbalah? Well, um, you'll have to excuse me, just in general, I'm sure some of you have a very good uh, background and others have uh, in, in these Jewish subjects and others uh, a less solid background. So uh, pardon me if I say things here and there that are overly familiar, but for those few people in the room who don't know this, the word Kabbalah doesn't mean mysticism, doesn't mean anything even remotely connected to mysticism. The word Kabbalah is a Hebrew word that's all over the Bible, it's all over rabbinic literature, in fact it's all over Israel today just in modern Hebrew that we use every day when you go, when you get a receipt at the restaurant or a receipt from your plumber, it says Kabbalah. 
when you check into the hotel, it says Kabbalah. Kabbalah just means something received. Le Kabbal in Hebrew is to receive. So, Yeshli Kabbalot, I have receipts, I have, uh, right? So, the, the classical location of Kabbalah in the rabbinic sense is in a text that's very familiar to you know, uh, Jews who know one piece of rabbinic literature. Like my, my, um, I, I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be true that if, if uh, a Jew had made it so far in their Jewish education to have encountered a rabbinic text, that would be the chapters of the fathers, Pirkei Avot. Everybody knew a little Pirkei Avot. And Pirkei Avot opens with that very famous Mishnah, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai Umasara Yoshua. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai and gave it to Joshua and so forth. So the, the really um, st standard sense of Kabbalah in rabbinic literature is a received tradition. It's this is the, and until the 13th century, if you said Kabbalah, and the context indicated that you weren't talking about a receipt from the plumber, but you were speaking about some kind of lore, some kind of a body of knowledge or wisdom or tradition that was being transmitted, that the meaning was this, this transmission, this reception. Moses received the sense in Pirkei Avot, in the, in the chapters of the Fathers being, Moses received the oral Torah, if that wasn't clear, right? We all know that the Bible tells the story of Moses getting the Torah, but that's the written Torah. And rabbinic literature has this notion that Moshe received the oral Torah at the same time on Sinai. You could say, you know, in the daytime he was getting the oral Torah, at nighttime he was getting uh, sorry, in the daytime, the written Torah, the nighttime, the oral Torah. And, of course, the written Torah would be something that the nations of the world would, would sort of adopt or co-opt or whatever you want to call it. The, the oral Torah was some internal tradition that only the Jews had. And that was something that also was very significant in the rabbis' view for the uniqueness of the Jewish people, especially once Constantine accepted Christianity and said, well, you know, what you call the Bible, the Old Testament is ours, it's universal. So the rabbi said, that's okay, you can take, you, you take the Torah, we have the, we have the oral Torah, you take the written Torah, <laughs> but you can't steal the oral Torah. So this is the sense of Kabbalah in for really for most of Jewish history, because after all, like, the 13th century is yesterday in Jewish historical terms, right? Like some of us probably remember the 13th century. Um, so now this, things will start to change only with regard to this word, only in the 12th, second half of the 12th century, around uh, really closer to the end of the 12th century, you find rabbis, a small group of rabbis in southern France, in Provence, um, Languedoc, 
and in Catalonia, in Girona, near Barcelona, who begin to refer to their esoteric knowledge, traditions, lore, opinions, whatever you want to call them. These, it's, it's of course very um, very um, laconic, you know, I think, is that the word for that I'm looking for? In other words, these statements are few and far between. They have to kind of be pieced together. It's not like we have a big book that comes out in, uh, in the year 1200 that says, Kabbalah, you know? No, it's not like that. We start getting rabbis who write, I have, I have a Kabbalah that the secret meaning of this is so and such and such, right? We have some indication now that they're speaking about the Kabbalah the way we mean it today, that this Kabbalah is already something esoteric. It's not just the oral Torah generally, the Talmud, Midrash, and the things that the rabbis meant when they used the term Kabbalah. Their secret traditions are now understood as, uh, as Kabbalah. Now, so that's step one. So Kabbalah is a very old term, but it comes to mean something else sometime around 1200 in southern France, especially and then a generation later in northern Spain. And now you're going to do something of a, a long detour, and then we'll come back to the 12th century, because I can't just say something about the name. I did promise as well to, to give a kind of long view, broad view of the history of Jewish esotericism, Jewish secrets, um, and place Kabbalah in that uh, tradition. So, so I, I want to say that Kabbalah is not the first manifestation or expression of a secret tradition in the, in the Jewish world, but that in fact secrets or some kind of secret lore go um, all the way back to, I'm going to take the risk and say all the way back to biblical <laughs> literature, a sense in which that not everything is revealed, not everything is um, to be taken at face value, that to really understand something you have to go beneath and that not everybody is privileged to receive the secrets of this tradition. Okay? It's, I think in many ways it's the hardest to make this argument for the Bible, it's a bit of a stretch, but I can give you uh, on the one hand some verses from the Bible that speak about Secrets, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear the Lord and the Lord will show them his covenant. I, when I go for English translations, I'm just, I can't resist the King James. I'm sorry, that's why it's so weird. But, um, but that, that one sounds like somebody who has the fear or awe of God is privy to some secret of the Lord. I'm not saying that's a big esoteric teaching, but that there is some secret of the Lord, Sod, Sod Hashem. It's um, Sod Hashem Av. 
The second one is even more problematic because it, it actually says the opposite of the idea that Jews, uh, uh, individual Jews might qualify to, to receive some secrets of the tradition. In the second verse from the book of Deuteronomy, it says, Hanisterot Hashem, the secret things belong to, to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So that's, that's it doesn't really matter. I'm not attached to the argument per se, but that says to quite clearly that the realm of secrets is real, but belongs to God. Secrets are God's. Humans should be modest and live within the confines of what is possible for humans to do and to know, to behave properly, do the right thing, learn the Torah, keep the Torah, so forth. Um, so eh, those are some two, two verses for your consideration, saying things about secrets in the Bible. The picture on the left in the background is from the, um, from the notebook of Isaac Newton. Just thought it was a fun thing to choose for that. But um, maybe some of you know that Isaac Newton, in addition to uh, his rather well-known work as a scientist in the 17th century, was like many of his fellow scientists, no less engaged in the study of uh, religious texts, and in particular uh, with the secrets of those texts. And one of the things that was very uh, in Interesting to Newton was uh, the Kabbalah. He made a study of the Kabbalah and was in touch with some of the same figures who were involved in the production of that Latin book uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of the, the talk. But he was also convinced that if you understood correctly various passages in the Bible, you would access very profound secrets of the cosmos. So he took his mathematical mind and applied it to various passages in the Bible. And one of his favorites was the tabernacle. So this is Newton's own diagram of the tabernacle in which he tries to establish the numerical values of the different measures uh, of the space and the, the internal spaces of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle. Because he understood at least one thing, which I think all of us could more or less uh, agree to as well, and that is that the function of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, in the Bible, in the simplest sense, I'm not getting involved in any midrashim or far-fetched explanations, but what's the Mishkan for? What's the tabernacle for? It's, it's to create a space for God to dwell, it's to create a portal through which God and a human can communicate. And the whole thing is set up with, with a kind of series of progressions that take ultimately the high priest into that space where between the wings of the cherubs on top of the ark holding the tablets, the the, the, the divine dimension will become accessible and possible to interact with. So it's a, 
It's a, it's a portal to another dimension. That's the bottom line of it. Now, the Bible doesn't say portal of it to another dimension, but it basically, it, it does say everything that I just said in black and white. You build it this way, and these are the dimensions, and then when Moses or Aaron goes in, God speaks to them, and there's a smoke that, that is uh, created with incense, and in its billowing, you see this animated wizard. I don't know, whatever. That's, maybe it doesn't quite say that. But um, in any case, <clears throat> there is some, um, the idea that there could be direct contact between God and humans is obviously part of the Bible, and not just when God reveals God's self to the prophets, but in this regularized structure that is designed to facilitate that contact. So that's some kind of early history of the idea that you can structure an encounter with the divine. It's not just grace, all of a sudden you're walking down the street and God starts talking to you. It's by design. You have to implement these practices and procedures and at the end of it, the portal opens up and it works. Um, okay. So, um, I think we can talk much more um, meaningfully about secrets and Jewish esotericism when we get into the rabbinic era. For the rabbis, the, the fact that there were secrets to the Torah was, uh, was, uh, was, was understood. It was, uh, it was clear and it was also clear that since they're secrets, you don't need to talk about them and that's why the Talmud is not full of discussions of secrets of the Torah. So the Talmud is a very um, open book. The Talmud, I mean, it's not so easy for most of us to sit down and learn, but nevertheless, if you do sit down and learn it, which, which is always a great idea, um, you'll see that, although it can get very, very weird, it does not go into the divulging of secrets. That would be highly inappropriate. Um, but the rabbis did not leave out of the Talmud the information about where the secret lore is concentrated and, and what it's attached to. And, and they told some sort of stories about the way they handled the transmission of secrets. They don't tell you the secrets, but they tell you something about how the secrets were passed down and shared within very small circles of initiates. And this is almost certainly something that is in full blossom at the time of Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva is probably the most famous example of one of the classical rabbis of the ancient world who was actively involved in this secret realm of uh, Jewish lore, even as he was absolutely central to 
the development of the exoteric, or the sort of public face of rabbinic Judaism in his time. So the, um, the two headquarters of Jewish esoteric lore and speculation in the rabbinic period were actually two chapters in the Bible. So some people say that what this means is that the rabbis, you just, whatever you do, you can't make them stop engaging with the Bible as exegetes, as commentators, so that you know, everything is exegesis, everything is interpretation. So they're not even really mystics, and they, they, it's not even exactly secrets. It's all about rabbis just interpreting more and more and more. But whatever, whatever the case may be, the Talmud itself makes it clear that the two focal points of Jewish esotericism in the rabbinic period were the first chapter of the book of Genesis and the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. These are the headquarters. These are the passages of the Bible to which the esoteric lore, the secret traditions, are attached, associated. These are the sections of the Bible that the exegesis of which, the explanation of which, the speculation with regard to which are highly guarded. Um, they're obviously possible, but now we're talking about uh, highly classified information. You, know, you could kind of, you could give different code levels for some of the different lores, but, and they do that in a way. That's one perfectly reasonable way of reading uh, the Mishnah in the Talmudic tractate uh, known as Chagiga. I want to show you that Mishnah for a second. If so this is the, f the first Mishnah of the second chapter of the Babylonian Talmud tractate Chagiga. Just read it straight up. Three subjects actually are mentioned as requiring discretion and secret transmission, you could say. First, the subject of forbidden relations, arayot, uh, sometimes translated as incestuous relations, cannot be taught, expounded, um, in the presence of three people. I, I wish we had time to talk about that tonight, but <laughs> what can you do? The work of creation, in other words, the engagement with the first chapter of Genesis can't be spoken about and um, discussed with two people. And the work of the chariot, referring to the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel, can't be spoken about in the presence of even one person, unless that one person is wise and gets it already. Which is kind of an amazing statement, but that's more or less what it says. You can only share the most profound secrets with someone for whom it's sufficient, the rabbis later explain in the Talmudic development of the, the, this mi Mishnah, they get it 
from chapter headings. That's the rabbinic way of putting it. Like you, you, you can give them a little bit and they get the rest on their own because they have a, they have a gift. They have a, um, a sense for the material and they, they get it. So these are bodies of knowledge that cannot be transmitted like this, <laughs> right? If you're going to really talk about it, according to the rabbis, you have to do so with great discretion. And um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Mishnah con continues with this warning that if you speculate on four things, man, too bad for you because it would have been better not to have been born. And what are those things? Now, for those of you who know Bialik's poetry, it shall ring a bell. But what is above, what is beneath, what's before, and what's after? In other words, we have a sense that, one has a sense that we live in a world that's bound, has its limits, we live within, on this planet, and, it's, and questions like what's above this reality, what's beneath this reality, what came before the creation of the world, the world, what will be after the end of history? Don't ask these questions. Um, and if you do pursue speculation on these kinds of questions, you should know that this is a kind of shame that you are, sh you are, dis you are not honoring your maker. And again, it would have been better had you not been born. In other words, the, the, the sense here is the rabbis are saying to the reader of the Talmud, don't speculate too much. If you speculate too much, you'll reach places that it's immodest to reach. That, that's a kind of immodesty that reflects poorly on you as a person and shows that you don't have honor for God because you're, you're overstepping your limits as a human being. Makes sense that they say that in a book that's intended for a wide readership. But it's never that simple, of course, in the Talmud. And anyone who continues reading this chapter of the Talmud will see that the whole sub, the, the content of the chapter is what's the work of the creation, what's the work of the chariot, um, what's before, what's after, what's above, what's below. This is all there, but it's there in a it's there without being overly developed. Like I said, it's more stories about the transmission of the secrets than it is of the secrets themselves. Um, and of course, this is the part of the Talmud that includes the very famous story of the four who entered Pardes, the four who entered Paradise Pardes, which many people are familiar with. Rabbi Kiva is the star of that story, he goes in, goes out, which many correctly understand, in my opinion, to be uh, a parable for human, the, the human uh, incursion into the divine realm and the dangers of that incursion uh, because of the, uh, well, we, we, from the story in the Talmud itself, it's a bit hard to know why it's so dangerous, but, but the story is full of danger, obviously. Only Akiva manages to get out unscathed. Um, 
But it, so it's obviously dangerous, but it's not so clear why it's so dangerous. We can understand why it's so dangerous when we look at the literature that's not in the Talmud, that wasn't part of the canonical literature of, uh, of antiquity, but, um, but parallels it also chronologically. And that literature is called the, um, the Hechalot and Merkava literature, or the heavenly hall and chariot literature. This is material that was only published very recently for the first time, for the most part, in, in, uh, and was available only in manuscripts for centuries. And the manuscripts that we have were mostly copied in the 12th century by the German pietists. And those manuscripts had come, some of them from Baghdad and some of them from the land of Israel. That literature was never printed because that's, that was real esoteric literature. And that literature includes all of the stories of Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues doing the things that they're described doing in the Talmud, but without going, uh, the Talmud doesn't go into the secrets. The Hechalot and Merkava manuscripts do include all the secrets. And there we understand why it's dangerous because although God wants to be seen by the humans who make the ascent to observe the rider of the chariot, the angelic retinue, the sort of divine bureaucracy on high doesn't want humans up there. So to get through, you have to have all of the passwords and the passwords are often magical seals and magical names. So there's a lot of magic in that body of literature as well. And this would be known to Kabbalists in the Middle Ages. It had been copied, as I just said a moment ago, in the 12th century in Germany. So it reached the Kabbalists. They know about this literature, but it, it doesn't exercise a very strong uh, influence on most Kabbalistic literature. Uh, another work that dates from this same period, roughly contemporary with the Talmud. We don't know exactly when any of these books were written. It's anywhere between the second and the sixth centuries, something like that, for the Hechalot and the Merkava and Shior Koma and so forth. The other book that I do want to single out because of its extraordinary impact on the history of Kabbalah until this very day is uh, the work known as Sefer Yetzira. Sefer Yetzira, sometimes translated as the Book of Formation or the Book of Creation. Sefer Yetzira is a book, again, don't have nobody knows exactly where or when it was written, um, but it's a very strange book. It's not like any of the others. It's actually not like any of the Hechalot or Merkava books, which sound a bit midrashic when you open them up. They have the rabbis that you are familiar with from rabbinic literature. Um, they, they, it quotes the Bible, like rabbis like to do. Sefer Yetzira doesn't have any rabbis in it. It doesn't really have any verses from the Bible in it. It's extremely idiosyncratic by Jewish standards, um, and it's straight up cosmology. 
It's a, it's a straight up treatment of how the cosmos is structured, how, what is the nature of our reality. But it's not very Jewish, really, you could say, because I mean, if it was properly Jewish, then they would say yeah, the nature of reality is that God created the world and 10 utterances, and look what it says in Breshit, and look over there what it says in Isaiah. And this, it's, it's not playing that game at all. It's setting out a very abstract system and using some terms for the very first time that we know of in Jewish literature that become central to Kabbalah, which you'll, we'll get back to tonight within my 45-minute limit. The word Sfirot comes from Sefer Yetzirah. So you, and the Kabbalists don't let go of Sefer Yetzirah for seven, eight hundred years, they're running with Sefer Yetzirah, which joins the Bible in their eyes as a, as a reference base text. If the Kabbalists want to say, you know, uh, you know t like a Bible thumper, kind of chapter and verse, you, you know, you, you, usually you think you cite the Bible. Let me give you a verse from the Bible, and that'll settle it. But the Kabbalists will, that, that the Bible is okay. If you can't find a good passage from Sefer Yetzirah, you can, you, can, you can go with the Bible. But the best is if you can get, get a verse from Sefer Yetzirah or a Mishnah, sometimes it's called, from Sefer Yetzirah. That's the best. So, so we have to look a little bit at Sefer Yetzirah. There's no way around it. To, to get Kabbalah on one foot, I think you have to understand a little bit of Sefer Yetzirah. So, so I want to give you just a few passages from Sefer Yetzirah just to, get, to give you a sense of how this book will ultimately be, be adopted by the medieval Kabbalah. So it starts right out with the building blocks of the cosmos. And the building blocks are 32 in number. This is the very beginning of Sefer Yetzirah. The discussion of the text of Sefer Yetzirah would take three 45-minute sessions, so I'm going to not do that right now. But this is a, a, this is a very... This, the, the passages that I'm showing you now are from what is the oldest stratum of the work, which had, had many accretions over hundreds of years. So 32 paths of wisdom that were carved out of three sfarim. Who the hell knows what that means? But, but and of course, nothing is, is vocalized in the text, but sfarim is pretty obvious. Samech pei reish yud mem. But then it says, samech pei reish, samech pei reish, and samech pei reish. So now everybody knows Hebrew. Knows, well, you can vocalize those things a lot of different ways. One way would be to say that it's bisfar, besofer, sipur, sapur, whatever. I kept this was from the internet. But, but um, who knows? It could also be besefer, besefer, besefer. But something about that root, samech peresh, sefer, which is... Right, the spore is to count, a spiraz, a number, a, uh, 
uh, Sipur as a story, um, uh, and uh, so they're playing with that word. Who knows exactly what the point is? I don't know. But then right away they go from there to say they're actually ten sfirot. That's still the same root, samech pei reish, but now it's become this new word, sfirot, eser sfirot, ten sfirot. And then it describes the sfirot, seemingly the adjective following the noun sfirot is blima, which does appear in the Bible, but nobody knows what it means in the Bible either. Because um, <laughs> it only shows up once, so nobody, we don't know what these words mean. But blima, just going to be somewhat simple about it. Bleed means without. Ma means what. So I don't know. Without whatness. Some kind of, some ineffability, I think, is being suggested, right? Ten ineffable spherot, whatever they are. And then this very famous phrase that the Kabbalists never tire of invoking. Ten and not nine. Ten and not eleven. Don't let me catch you suggesting you have to be careful of the Chabadniks here. They're going to put in, they're going to put in Da'at. And we're going to get, we're going to be, have to be careful because they could get to 11. But, so, okay, th we get it. There are 10. And understand this with wisdom, be wise. Th now we have a, a moment of, of uh, practice, of doing something. Except for Yitzirah, in addition to being a book of cosmology, is a book that asks its user to enact something, to enact it, to, it's a, to, to perform it. And this already comes out in the very first lines of Sefer Yetzirah. Test them, investigate them, get the matter clearly worked out, and restore the creator to his place. Hashev Yotzer al Mechono. I think if... I remember correctly the Hebrew. Return the maker to his place, maybe on the throne of glory. So the implication being that when you are playing around with these spherot, you are doing something. You're returning the creator to the creator's rightful place, perhaps on the throne of glory. Now, one of, in the five minutes that I have left, the, the, the main point that I want to make is that the Sfirot of Sefer Yitzirah are very different from the Sfirot of Kabbalah, which you'll hear more about when we meet next time. But the Sfirot of Sefer Yitzirah are described in, the, in actually more than one place in Sefer Yitzirah, and they're a, little, they're a little bit different in the two places, but whichever one I chose was not going to work out for people who were looking for the spirot that they are familiar with from the paperback book on Kabbalah they picked up in the grocery store checkout line, right? So this, here's, the, here's the Sefer Yitzirah explanation of what these ten spirot are. This is at least explanation number one. These ten ineffable spirot, they're ten, and they have no end. So they're like vectors. And, or I don't usually use this term dimension, but you can say, like, you can say it like this if you want. It says, um, um, omek is the word in Hebrew in Sefer Yitzirah, which is literally depth. Um, 
I think it means also that the sense being you never, you never get there. That's why I say vector. Like you never reach it. So the 10 vectors of reality that are called Sfirot in Sefer Yetzirah are the first and the last. So some sense in which this is a kind of dimension of time or the vector of time goes, you don't, it goes back in infinitely and goes forward infinitely. The dimension of good and the dimension of evil, tov and ra, omek tov the omek ra, which I sometimes call the, um, the uh, dimension of uh, value. Right, this is not part of so to speak. Phys our re reality doesn't include good and bad. That's a whole. That's not. You can't look under a microscope and see good or bad. But so it's a kind of it's its own dimension, good and bad, and the three-dimensional world, which the Sefer Yitzirah says above and below, east and west, north and south. So three-dimensional world gets us six spherot. Good and evil get us two more. And past and future get us two more. Those are the ten spherot of Sefer Yetzirah. When you see next time we meet what the ten spherot of the Kabbalah are, you'll realize that they were um, interestingly different. Um, now... The other part of Sefer Yitzirah that's really important to get is that it's not just about those 10 dimensions, but also about the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And language is, of course, deeply important here, deeply important in rabbinic cosmology, and no less so in medieval Kabbalah. The rabbis already said the book of Genesis begins with 10 utterances by the creator, the Asara, Ma'amarot, Right, that God, and God said, God said, God said 10 times. That's how the world was created. Things were created because God said them. So God's speech was creative. And since God spoke Hebrew, and that Hebrew was recorded in the Bible, so those words are what made reality as far as the rabbis were concerned. Sefer Yitzirah does something really interesting, which is to blast that to the kind of, let's just say, they quantumize it or atomize it. I guess maybe atomize it is probably good enough. Um, in other words, it's not words anymore, but letters. The 22 letters are constitutive of reality. And they're constantly in flux, and their recombinations are what generate the whole variety of being that exists in reality. Um, and the text says the 22 letters are fixed on a wheel. A very recent edition of work on Sefer Yetzirah, published by a professor in Israel, includes this page that I took a picture of in which he suggests that to his reader, this is a professor, Mayor Bar-Ilan, Bar-Ilan University, right? He says, he says take, the, take your scissors, cut this page out of my book, then cut these wheels and make what's called a volvel with spinning wheels, this is a kind of medieval calculator. This was used very widely, based ultimately on the astrolabs in the Arabic astronomical tradition. In 12th, 13th century Europe, they started using them 
in, in Europe as calendrical devices and for mystical speculation. Um, and he, he says, this is how it works. You can't understand Sefer Yetzirah without making this machine, without making this calculator, because then you see how all of the recombinations work. This I probably can just start with next, next week, but here I was going to... Well, this I just wanted to show you how I'm juxtaposing pre-Kabbalah and Kabbalah, but the Sefer Yetzirah says you have 10 Sfirot, then you have 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are divided into three mothers, seven doubles, those are the Hebrew letters that go uh, like Bet, Vet, Gimel, Jimel, Dal, Kaf, Chaf, right, and so forth. Okay, seven doubles and 12, they call them, uh, Sefer Yetzirah calls them 12 diagonals. And that adds up to 22, of course. And those are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the, you could say it's very easy to transpose this onto the porf, porf, uh, porphyrian arboreal diagram that was very popular in the Middle Ages, uh, used as a way of explaining Aristotle's famous book, uh, on the uh, categories, where he explains the generation of being. And you can see that the way this maps out, you have three horizontal lines, one, two, three, in yellow, and you have the seven connective vertical lines in red, and you have 12 diagonals in blue. And this is just to show you that <laughs> In typical printings of Sefer Yetzirah, they also show you how this can be done in general, that the 22 letters combine with each other, and these, gen these generate all the possibilities of reality. You take Aleph and combine Aleph, whoops, combine Aleph with all of the letters. Then you take Bet and you combine Bet with all the letters, and so forth. And this is what Sefer Yetzirah speculation focuses upon. And all of these raw materials will be taken up by the Kabbalists beginning in the 12th century. So I have I've given you my 45 minutes. Maybe I'll take just one minute to tie it up and say that this, this is still about Sefer Yitzhirah and less about Kabbalah. But what, what, how did such a weird book get to be so famous. So I think this is an important point to, to also appreciate the, the ground from which the Kabbalah would rise in the 12th and 13th centuries. So who, it's whatever the original meaning of Sefer Yitzhirah was, the the first person to, that we know of who ever wrote a commentary on it was the famous Sadia Gaon, right, of 10th century. Well, he was born in Egypt, and then he was in Palestine, and then he was in Baghdad, but he became the Gaon in Baghdad in, in uh, the very beginning of the 10th century. And Sadia wrote the first known commentary on Sefer Yetzirah. So the first thing I want to say is, 
If Sadia writes a commentary on a book, that book is part of the canon. So we're going to talk about canonization. The very fact that Sadia Gaon graced this little work, which when I was a college student, I, I, I had on one piece of paper folded up in, in my back pocket because it was the only Jewish book that I could fit in one piece of paper before, you know, it was before we had iPhones or anything. Uh, so he wrote a commentary on it. That means it's in the canon. The second thing that I want to say is, as far as Sadia was concerned, it was a book of Jewish science. It was a book of Jewish science. So I sometimes say that Sefer Yitzhirah is like a Rorschach inkblot. Anybody looks at Sefer Yitzhirah, they can very easily project whatever narishkite, whatever they have on their minds, whatever their worldview is, they can find it in Sefer Yitzhirah. It's sufficiently ambiguous to be able to uh, hold an incredible variety of interpretations. Um, but Sadia was clear. This is not just any book. This is not about grammar. This is not about I don't know what. This is a book of science. And for the next 200 years, quite a few leading r rabbis and intellectuals followed in Sadia's footsteps and also wrote commentaries on Sefer Yitzhidah. And without a single exception, everyone agreed this was a work of Jewish science. Okay, so I'll be able to explain this a little bit better when we start the next session. But for, for, for now, what's important to, to appreciate is that for Sadia and those other rabbis who were writing in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, it was important that Jews have a scientific tradition because they are the ones, beginning in Sadia's time, who are dealing with the integration of the Greco-Arabic philosophical and scientific tradition. First, Sadia is dealing with Aristotle and all of those basically Greek thought that's been translated into Arabic in Baghdad and, well, it's already been done more than a century before, but Sadia is the first rabbi who we can see took it seriously and decided that this was something that rabbis had to, had to take responsibility for. And this is, so this is a kind of revolutionary moment in Jewish life, in Jewish history, when Jews are having to deal with a reality in which the world around them of sophisticated, intelligent, learned people is validating the importance of science and the scientific tradition. It's not exactly what we would call science, but Aristotle and Galen and Ptolemy and so forth, these are for them what science is, right? They weren't into going into laboratories and doing uh, experiments, but if Aristotle said it, and Galen said it, and Ptolemy said it, and so forth, that's, that's science. And it was a bit embarrassing that we didn't have that in the Talmud, and we didn't have that in the Bible. So when Sadia saw Sefer Yitzhidah, he saw a book that he could sell, so to speak. I think he didn't. I don't mean that he was disingenuous about it, but he saw a book that could plausibly be 
put out there as a work of Jewish science from antiquity. And the book, although it's true what I said before, that there aren't any rabbis in it, Abraham does get an honorable mention. So you could say this was a Jewish scientific tradition going back to Abraham. That's what the book would want us to think in any case. And it was something that we could be, we could be proud of and that we could study and that we could develop. And what I'd like to argue and share with you <laughs> Next, next time we meet is that you can't understand the emergence of Kabbalah and Kabbalistic concepts without appreciating the fact that, it's, that they are emerging from this medieval scientific context. That the, when the Kabbalists take Sefer Yitzirah, they're also making a claim about themselves as, as scientists. We'll have to talk about what, it, what, what, that would, what, what that could mean and how, of course, scientists in a very different sense than we would use the term today, but in their own time and really through the 17th century, a completely plausible argument for seeing what they do as a legitimate form of science based on Sefer Yetzirah uh, to a large extent. So I'm going to stop there. I didn't keep my promise, and I went eight minutes over, I think, but, um, all right, well, yeah, well, you, you can dock me. So now I'll give you 10, 15 minutes, whatever, Ari's the boss, please. So when you talked about Sefer Yetzirah, saying that there are three, I'm going to call them core uh, yes. uh, letters, you didn't mention them, but the wheels seem to show them to be Aleph, Sheen, and Mem. Is that yes, correct? That's correct. And so why? Um, uh, I would uh, I would say this. Why? Could you repeat the question. The question was: the Sefer Yitzirah has the, this breakdown of the Hebrew alphabet. There are twenty-two letters. Um, the fact is, it's it's hard. It's there is no good answer. Um, Sefer Yitzirah, in its as it as it seems to have grown over the centuries would do a lot with the letters and associating them with different parts of the body and making all kinds of correspondences. And people who learn Sefer Yitzhira today are often very interested in these correspondences. So there's a kind of active, contemplative interest in Sefer Yitzhira. Some people are studying. I know where, where I live in Zichron, we have a there's a group that gets together every Thursday night and uses Arya Kaplan's book uh, on Sefer Yitzirah. But, and here's where being um, an academic sort of spoils things for me a little bit. But one of the things I know from the manuscript tradition is that you can't find two manuscripts that have the same correspondences. So when Arya Kaplan decides that this letter is the liver and everybody's now working on their livers by contemplating this letter, it's hard for me to take it very seriously. Not that I could necessarily take it seriously if I had every manuscript telling me that that letter was my liver. But okay, I would say at least there's agreement that that letter is my liver. But in the way things are now, it's, it's, it's really uh, not possible to say with, with any certainty. The only thing that's obvious is that the seven doubles are seven doubles because there were seven doubles. Um, now, what's curious about it is that uh, very few places in the history of the Jewish people bothered 
with different vocalizations of all seven of those letters. Just like today in spoken Hebrew, we don't say uh, base Yaakov because it's a saf and not a taf. So the sa has gone, so I have to work for two people. I'm chayas when I'm outside of Israel and I'm chayut in Israel. The Ministry of the Interior made me, they tried to force me to choose. <laughs> but I still have to do, I, I had to say to the guy, Chayas is Chayut, just like Shabbos is Shabbat. You know that, right? Telling this Moroccan guy, trying to convince him. In any case, one of the things that scholars are looking at is where and when did Jews, for example, make a, a, a difference between the dotted Dalid and the non-dotted Dalid, right? That's not... I mean, there's nobody who does that. Maybe some Yemenites. I don't know. Like, I don't even think the Yemenites do that. Uh, they do still? Yeah, okay. So, so the Yemenites. That's good. It's good. The Yemenites keeping us honest. That's good. But uh, no, no really good answer. Yes, sir. Um, well, uh, I, I don't, uh, this gentleman is, is mentioning that in the early in Genesis it says in a verse about the earth that it was like kind of chaos, primordial chaos in Hebrew, tohu vavohu. And he's asking uh, whether the Kabbalistic term ein sof is perhaps an attempt to understand that kind of primordial, unformed chaos. And my answer to that would be uh, probably not. And that's for a number of reasons. But I think the best way of, uh, I don't know the best, but the, the most um, sort of responsible way of understanding where Ain Sof came from in Kabbalah, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but it's it, it sort of picking up on where I ended a few minutes ago. Like, um, I was about to start, had I had 10 more minutes, I was going to get into to Maimonides and, um, and the impact of, of the identification of Aristotelian concepts with the secrets of the Torah that you find in the works of Maimonides. Maima, and Maimonides says you can't say anything about God. This is called, like, in the academic literature, the apophatic <coughs> approach, like Meister Eckhart. You can't say anything about God. So you, the most you can, the best you can do is call God nothing with a capital N. Um, the other part of it is just straight up Aristotelian cosmology that at the beginning of the whole thing is the unmoved mover, the prime mover, right? The, beyond all of the spheres and uh, at the edge of the intellects or whatever kind of exact system you're, you're working with, you have the unmoved mover, the first cause. And 
You can't say anything about the first cause. You can't say anything about the unmoved mover. And on one foot, and the easiest to me, most direct answer to your question is that, is that the Kabbalistic Ein Sof is, a, he, is the Hebrew name for Aristotle's prime mover. Now, obviously, the Kabbalists have a, more to say than Maimonides or the Aristotelians about the non-Ainsof part of the divinity, right? But, but this is one of the ways that they imagine the Godhead as basically broken into, broken or whatever, divided into the God you can talk about and the God you can't talk about. And the God you can't talk about is sort of honoring that Maimonidean, Aristotelian sense that the real God is unchanging, unknowable, infinite, and so forth. And the God that is in the Bible is a kind of, I mean, a kind of uh, demiurgic second principle. And it sounds horribly heretical to say in such straight up terms, but this is nowhere more clear than in the very beginning of Zohar, the book that we'll speak about also next week. The Zohar says that the first verse of the Bible in the beginning, right, shouldn't be translated in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But, but by means of Reshit, which is another term for chokhmah, the principle of wisdom, the, right? The unnamed subject of the verse, the implicit subject of the verse, which is Ein Sof, created Elohim. Right? So Elohim, God, is the object of the first verse of the Torah for the Zohar, and Ein Sof is the hidden subject of the verse. So, Let's uh, take one question. But before the question, so what's the oldest extant um, manuscript of Sefer Yitzhirah that's been found? And where is it? Um, is it in the back? Is it the back? I, I was, <laughs> you, you wouldn't go too far off. If, I, the, I, um, there are probably a dozen or so manuscripts that are... Um, that sort of compete for the honor. Uh, there's a critical edition by Peter Heyman. I have it on my computer and he gives the, the, the obviously the names and presumed provenance of each of those manuscripts. But I'm thinking that uh, there are no manuscripts that have reached us from before the 10th century either. I, I'm, in fact, I'm not even sure if there is a 10th century manuscript, but uh, I have to double check. You know, the, it, the reason that we have, for the most part, the European libraries have manuscripts from like the 12th, 13th centuries. We have some older manuscripts now because of the Cairo Geniza. So that gets us a couple hundred, buys us a couple hundred more years, and then we have to skip to the Dead Sea Scrolls. There aren't a lot of manuscripts from between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Cairo Geniza. Uh, they didn't survive. It just, it's, 
So. Okay, one last question. Yeah. Sure. Uh, a question about history yes. and ideas. Uh, to explain uh, why at that particular time, 12th and 13th century, yes. and that particular place, Provence in France and Girona, yes. Spain, why did it suddenly grow, flourish at that yes. moment? I didn't mean to spend more time on that, and, and it, it, it didn't really get skipped, but it just got pushed back a little bit. And I was heading there in my final comments. The, 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 the quick answer to your question is the 12th century Renaissance. And uh, the, in a couple of sentences, I would simply say that um, we're talking about a, a period that's quite distinctive and a place that's quite particular. Um, Jews since Saadia's time in the 10th century had been aware of the Greco-Arabic philosophical revival, scientific revival, but the Jews of Europe um, had not been exposed by and large to those traditions because they didn't use Arabic. They used Hebrew and Aramaic. And Jews in these uh, border areas between the Arabic world and the Latinate world were involved in the transmission of Greco-Arabic knowledge, science, and philosophy to Europe. They were, were involved in almost all of the major translation projects. Um, there were a number of them who knew both Arabic and Latin, and were, or they would handle Arabic to Hebrew, and then there were other people who could take the Hebrew to Latin piece of it. So the Jews are hubs in this process of of transferring and developing scientific knowledge uh, from the Greco-Arabic tradition into, into Europe, precisely at this time in, and in those places. Provence is where the Ibn Tibon family is living in the 12th century. Ibn, the Ibn Tibon family translates Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed in Maimonides' own lifetime and in correspondence with Maimonides from Arabic into Hebrew. So they are the conduits of science in the 12th century. Those are the, those are the hotbeds of where this is happening. It's creating a very, a very, um, what word, I'm looking for a word. It, <coughs> tense is not the right word exactly, but a fraught situation where rabbis are sitting in Provence who are responsible to all of the Talmudic literature in the carrying on this ancient tradition that's been going on for over a thousand years of, of working on these materials, Bible study, rabbinic lore, halakha, and so forth. And all of a sudden, you have elements in that learned community of scholars who are studying Aristotle and studying science. Um, and that has, a, that has very significant implications. I mean, I'm not, uh, I would say that, and I think this is a good place to end, that Kabbalah and 
Jewish philosophy emerge together in the 12th century in this European <coughs> orbit, and both of them are expressions of a period of, tr of transition and even crisis from a cultural point of view, because as soon as you're exposed to those ideas, as soon as you say science is important to learn and that science is describing reality, then you have to ask yourself, well, what am I doing spending the whole day studying Torah? Like, what kind of reality is that? So it really makes people question how they can continue being Jews in the same way they had been Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years. It creates a kind of cultural crisis. Without being overly reductivist, one of the short answers to the, to the question is that Kabbalah is also trying to provide a rationale for the ongoing validity of Jewish practice in an age in which it's already obvious that the simple meaning of the tradition is no longer sufficient. Well, that's a good place to... Uh... So, uh, you all have a homework assignment. You're going to read, see if you can see around tonight before you get to bed. Yeah, the truth is, it really would be great if you haven't to take a quick look at the first chapter of Ezekiel. That's super important. And uh, indeed, Sefer Yitzirah, yeah, so I'll, send, I'll send you. Okay. So, and then uh, you're gonna cut out the pinwheel. Yes. And put it on your bedroom wall. And that will start in the process.